0: Let me begin by expressing my appreciation for David E, for Wade. It's just us three in my living room, plus my family. It's a really strange and mournful scene, but um, by God's grace, it'll be good. We're going to jump right back into our sermon series in the Gospel of John. And uh, we've been looking at uh, Jesus' farewell discourse, which stretches from John chapter 13 to 17, And this is uh, Jesus' final set of teachings to his disciples. And so we're going to look at John 16 today. If you could, um, it's printed for you in your worship guide, or you could open up your Bibles. I'm going to read from the ESV translation. So I have four points, and this is the outline. Number one, we're going to look at this riddle that Jesus gives us. Secondly, we're we're going to look at um, how our sorrow will turn turn into joy. Number three, we're going to look at the joy of asking and receiving. And then finally, we're going to look at the identity of this woman giving birth. Who is she? So let's begin. Number one, let's look at the riddle. In verse 16, at the very top of the passage, Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So he says, A little while, you won't see me. A little while, you will see me. It's a riddle. And we know it's a riddle because of the cadence, because of the rhythm and the beat of the words. And also because it's very pithy. And it's hard to see in the English because the translation is so clunky. But in the Greek, it's very elegant. Uh, it's less than half the words. There's a, there's a poetry to it. And notice also that the riddle is repeated three times in full. It's very noticeable. Jesus says it at first in verse 16. Verse 16. The disciples repeated word for word in verse 17. And in fact, they reference it again in shorthand in verse 18. We won't count that. But then finally, Jesus says it again, word for word in verse 19. Three times in full across four verses. Are you starting to get the picture? The disciples are supposed to be stumped by this. And in fact, we see them very befuddled. And so let me solve the riddle for you. It's not a difficult riddle. If you're familiar with the gospel story, um, it will be very obvious, which is in a little while, Jesus will die on the cross and his disciples won't see him. And then in a little while, Jesus will resurrect from the grave and then the disciples will see him. That's the answer to the riddle. But here's the question. Why doesn't Jesus just say it like that, plainly? Why does he use language that is deliberately mysterious and cryptic? And here's the answer. The answer is, mystery is the point. The riddle, the the befuddling riddle is the point. And I think here Jesus is telling us something really profound. He's telling us that all suffering... He's telling us that all our travails will feel in the moment completely inscrutable and incomprehensible. It'll feel like the world has turned upside down. Nothing makes sense. And it'll feel like God is absent from it. That He has abandoned you, that He has forsaken you. Think about the example, the I'm sorry, the experience of the disciples. That very night, after a somber and jarring meal um, in the upper room, Jesus will lead them to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in there, they will see their master repeatedly casting himself down in prayer. They had never seen him like that. It would have been frightening. And then in the dead of night, suddenly soldiers arrive, and they arrest Jesus. And Jesus allows them to take him to this complete sham of a trial, a total farce. And they would have seen Judas' betrayal. They would have seen Peter, of all people, Peter, deny him three times. They would have seen the crowd spit and curse at their master. And then finally, they would have seen the absolute horror of the resurrection. And all within 12 hours, the disciples would have been overwhelmed with grief and confusion and the depths of their agony and their suffering cannot be put into words but remember for the disciples there was a resurrection coming Jesus said remember a little while and you will see me and imagine that moment for the disciples Mary and Martha, the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection, they come running to the disciples and they say, Our master is not dead, he is alive. Come and see. And so imagine, right, what it must have been like from that moment on, everything is made clear. And what they thought was an absolute disaster ended up being the greatest thing that has ever happened. God redeeming humanity from the curse of Adam, Jesus Christ defeating sin and death through the cross, through the resurrection, but in the middle of it, in the middle of it, it would be beyond all human understanding. And so that's the first point. All our suffering, all hardship, all adversity, when you're going through it, it doesn't make any sense there doesn't seem to be any explanation for it and it'll feel like God has withdrawn his love and his presence from your life and there will be a darkness over your life so that's the first point the riddle the second point is how our sorrow will turn into joy look with me to verse 20 Jesus says you will weep and lament But the world will rejoice. And here he's reminding the disciples of the hostility of the world to the kingdom of God. And then he goes on, he says, You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, every time you see those two words, weep and lament, in the Bible, it is describing an intense sorrow. It is the sound of mourners at a funeral, it is this awful wailing. And Jesus here says something really radical. He says that sorrow, that weeping and lamenting will turn into joy. And he gives us this imagery of a woman giving birth. And you know, Jesus is a masterful teacher because you know what this imagery is telling us? It's telling us that our tears, that our groans, that our pains, these are not death pains, but these are birth pains. These are labor pains. Do you see the difference? Suppose one night you wake up in the middle of the night and you clutch your stomach and you feel this intense abdominal pain and it doesn't stop. It goes on hour after hour, wave after wave, the the, the intensity of it increasing. What would you think? You would think... I'm dying. <laughs> There's something terribly wrong with me. These are the pains of death. But not if you're pregnant. And you know, I personally witnessed this in person twice in my life. When Christina was uh, giving birth, and you know, both times they were natural births, so no anesthetics, she was in intense agony. I have never seen her like that. I've never seen her crying and groaning like that. But here's the thing. It wasn't traumatic. You know, Christine and I, we weren't saying, oh no, this is wrong. This shouldn't be happening, right? We both knew, and I should stop saying we, she knew that the labor pains was producing a child. She knew that her tears, her groans, is, how, is the mechanism, it's, it, it's the means by which Judah and Noah were coming into this world. Do you see what an amazing metaphor this is? And what this tells us is that our suffering, it tells us that our suffering is never meaningless. It tells us that there's always a purpose behind it. There's always a reason for it. And like labor pains producing a child, Our sufferings, our groanings, is producing for us a future joy. And do you know what that means? It means that you and I, you and I right now, we are in labor pains. This pandemic, these are labor pains. These are birth pains. Doesn't that fill you with hope? Doesn't that fill you with hope? But there's more. Look with me to verse 22. Jesus says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So what is Jesus telling us? He's telling us that this is a joy that cannot be lost. He's telling us that this is a joy that can never be taken from you. Because this is a joy that is not based on your circumstances. You see, the world has a joy too. And the world's joy is pretty simple. The world's joy completely rests on circumstances. And it's, and it's very easy, right? If you have good circumstances, you're happy. If you have bad circumstances, you're sad. Very simple. But if you're a Christian... If you're a Christian and you have bad circumstances, and bad circumstances are unavoidable, we live in a fallen world filled with sorrow. And so, when you have bad circumstances, you will be sad, you will shed tears. But rising above that sadness will be an indestructible joy because your joy is based on Christ. And when you have him, you can never lose him. One of the most important, uh, most influential books written in the 20th century is Man's Search for Meaning, written by Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist. And during World War II, he was put in a, a Nazi concentration camp. And somehow, he survived the ordeal, and he wrote a book about his experiences. And he says that in the death camps, he witnessed the absolute depths of suffering and deprivation. He says prisoners were stripped of everything, their possessions, status, their dignity. He says they were treated like animals. He says death was everywhere. And he noticed that the prisoners responded in very different ways. Some of the prisoners... Because they were treated like beasts, became like beasts. They stole food. They beat and betrayed their fellow prisoners. They became informers. They did anything to survive. Other prisoners, he says, lost the will to live. They would just literally crumble up and shrivel up and lie in their cots and refuse to move. And they would become sick and they would die. Many of them committed suicide. He says, but there was another group of prisoners. There was another group of prisoners who stayed strong, who kept their humanity. And in their starving state, they, were, they would even save morsels of food to give to the weak and to the sick. And in the face of unspeakable cruelty, they performed acts of heroism and kindness. And so Viktor Frankl, he's observing all of this, and he can't turn off his psychiatrist's brain. And so he's wondering, what accounts for the difference? Because everyone is in the same situation. Everyone is experiencing the same suffering, and yet you have these radically different responses. And he says it had nothing to do with education. It had nothing to do with economic status. In fact, it had nothing to do with people's station in life before they came into the death camps. And what he discovered, and this is the answer, he discovered that it had to do with what people were living for. If people were living for money, then in the camps, they were completely stripped of it. If people were living for their families, then in the the death camps, they were separated from their families, and they would see their family members killed if they were living for their status and their job, then none of that mattered in the camps. He said if they rested their life on anything perishable, on anything that could be taken away, then when they came into the camps, they didn't have a self left. They didn't have a reason, a purpose for living anymore. And he says the only people who kept their humanity, who stayed courageous, were the people who were living for something that couldn't be taken away in the camps. And what he observed is that, is that for many people, this was religion. It was their belief in the supernatural. It was some kind of joy and hope that transcended the awfulness of the camps. I think what this virus outbreak has taught us is the inherent fragility and instability of life. And we almost forgot that because we are creatures of the modern world. In the modern world, it promises us endless prosperity and security, but it's an illusion. It's an illusion. If you base your life on money, then at a moment's notice it can be swept away If you base your life on your health, on your job, on your relationships, on anything that is perishable, it can be destroyed. Only Jesus Christ can give you a joy that can never be taken away. Only his love, only his salvation is strong enough to transcend the tragedies of this life. And I think what this crisis should do for all of us is give us what alcoholics refer to as a moment of clarity. What are we living for? What is our joy based on? If you lose your job, if you lose your health, will you also lose your joy Or have you found a joy that can never be lost, that will be with you to the ends of the earth? That leads me to my third point, the joy of asking and receiving. So Jesus tells us that one of the key ways that we can receive this joy is through prayer. Look with me to verse 23. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So, you need to know that this specific call to prayer is actually repeated virtually word for word all throughout the farewell discourse. It's really quite striking. Jesus says it in chapter 14, verse 13. Again, in 15.7. Again, in 15.16. He says it in 16.23, our passage right here. And then finally, in 16.26, he says it five times in a single discourse, virtually the same call to prayer. What does that mean? Here's the interpretation. It means it's really important it means that it's central it is central to the christian life it is central to a life of joy and there's a lot here so let's walk through this let's unpack this and i have four points four subpoints let me go through this quickly number 1 notice the lavish promise of this prayer jesus says whatever whatever you ask of the father he will give it to you notice Jesus doesn't put a limit. He doesn't say, you can ask for this, but don't ask for that. Be sure not to ask for too much. He says, whatever you ask, it will be given to you. I feel like for many of us, when we pray, we're trying to protect God because we don't want to ask him too much because that might mean that he'll fail and then he'll look back, he'll look bad And so we're trying to protect his reputation. There's a legend that one day, uh, one of Alexander the Great's most faithful, uh, most long-serving generals came to him. And he asked Alexander for this favor to pay for his daughter's wedding. And so Alexander, he looked at his beloved general and he said, absolutely, I will do this request. And so he said, go to my treasure." Ask for whatever you need, and the funds will be provided. The next day, the treasurer came to Alexander looking quite alarmed, and he said that the general had requested funds that would pay for the most lavish, the most extravagant wedding that had ever been held that it was, it, was, it was outrageous, it was beyond reason, and that the treasurer pleaded with Alexander to deny this request because clearly the general was abusing Alexander's generosity. Alexander paused and he thought for a moment and he said, give my general everything he has asked for, every penny, because he does me two honors. first, he thinks I am rich enough to afford this request. And then second, he thinks I am generous enough to grant it. Do you believe that God is great enough and generous enough that you can ask him anything? What do your prayers say about God? Is the God of your prayers, is he a great God Or is he a small God? So that's the first point, the lavishness of the promise. Secondly, the alignment of prayer. Jesus says, pray in my name. And so we are to pray in the name of Jesus. These are not magic words that make the prayer work. But you have to understand that in the ancient world, um, your name is who you are. It is your identity and being. It is your your character and your will. And so to pray in Jesus' name is to ask in accordance with his character, in accordance with his will. It means to pray so that your desires are brought into alignment with Jesus' heart. In John 15, verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me, And my words abide in you, listen to this, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. In other words, prayer is a relationship in which your heart becomes like God's heart, in which you love what He loves, in which you value what He values. This is how all relationships work. You know, for Christina and I, one of our favorite, our our most favorite activity is to take walks together. We love this. We love to go out and enjoy nature and you know, hold hands and talk and just pour out our hearts to each other. It's wonderful. We love it. But here's the thing. I can't remember if I enjoyed walking before I met Christina. And so here's the question. Do I like it because she likes it? Or does she like it because I like it? And the answer is it doesn't matter because right now we like it together and it has become woven into our lives and it is the thing that we most enjoy. And prayer is like that. It's coming into the presence of God. It is seeing your heart come into alignment With Him. And when you're praying like that, it'll change your desires. It's going to change what you love. It has to. Otherwise, you're not really praying. Otherwise, you're, you're just going in with a list of demands. So that's the second thing the alignment of prayer. Third, the joy of prayer. When you are so aligned with the Father that you ask the Father what He wants. I want you to know you bring him joy. And his joy will become your joy. One of my favorite things to do is to read books. I don't know if you knew that about me. And I especially love to read books to my boys. And right now we're reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. And let me tell you, this is this is like a dream that I've been having for twenty years right now we're reading through the silver chair, which is one of my favorite Narnia books. And every night we have this routine. My boys say to me, Daddy, can we read Narnia? And I will say, yes, we can read Narnia. And it makes me so happy. But here's the thing. Who has the greater joy? Is it me in hearing this request? Or is it my boys in receiving what they have asked for. You see, it's all interconnected. It's all intermingled. Our joys flow one into the other. It makes me so happy to give my boys what they have asked for. And it makes my my boys so happy to ask me what I want them to ask. Jesus says, ask and receive that your joy may be full. You see, prayer is a fountain of Christian joy. Won't you drink from it? Safeguard of prayer. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, it will be given to you. So what that means is that Jesus won't give you what you might have asked for that is not in accordance with his name. Do you see what a wonderful safeguard this is to our prayers? Imagine one day you find a magic lamp and there's a genie who will grant any wish. The problem with the magic genie is that he will give you whatever you want, no matter how harmful, no matter how foolish. But God is not a magic genie. He is a loving father. And he will always give you Good things if only you will ask for them and he will never give you bad things even if you should ask that's the safeguard of prayer and so these are amazing promises how can we not pray our heavenly father invites us into his presence we don't have to ask the right things we only need to come to him like a little child finally I want to close with the gospel who is this woman giving birth? Is this just a metaphor? Jesus describes her in a very interesting way. In verse 21, he says, She has sorrow because her hour has come. Now, if you know the Gospel of John, every time it says the hour, it's referring to Jesus' agony on the cross. And therefore, Jesus is the woman. And his agony on the cross is his labor pains. It is his birth pains. And, and, and who is he giving birth to? Don't you see? It is you and I. It is the church. You and I, we are the joy that was waiting for him on the other side of the agony of the cross. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. If Jesus made you his joy and so endured the cross, you and I, we can make him our joy and so endure these present sorrows. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, I feel like a little child and I feel like I'm standing in the ocean and I see this enormous tsunami wave about to come down and crash on all of us who has the strength to stand who can endure such an ordeal oh Lord have mercy on us draw near to us Give us your strength. Pour out your love into our hearts. Comfort us with the Holy Spirit. We also pray for the world. The whole world is going through this terrible disease. Lord, would you please have mercy on all of us? Would you please heal this land? And through this terrible pestilence, May there be much good that comes from it. May there be open doors to the gospel. May there be healing and reconciliation. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.